Good morning, my name is Rob, and it's my pleasure to uh, be able to bring you the second reading. Continue on in Daniel. I can't help but think Steven Spielberg would have a great time. <laughs> <laughs> this whole maybe what, <laughs> what's disturbing is it's, it's actual the word truth. So we're going to go on from word 15, uh, word 15 well, um, verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision <clears throat> and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is a king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is a first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. They become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yes, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, Daniel, uh, Daniel Tabray is uh, pretty easy to understand, so this won't take long. <laughs> Thank you, that was a joke. Uh, truth is, my head's reeling from trying to come to terms with it all. Uh, especially, especially Daniel's response at the end, did you notice that? I mean, at the end of chapter 7, he's deeply troubled and pale. At the end of chapter 8, he's exhausted, worn out for several days and appalled by the vision. Why such a response after hearing God speak? So, so different to chapter 2, remember chapter 2, where he praises God, the revealer of mysteries? Well, we're going to dive straight into it, and we'll see how God reveals future events of history, and then we'll get behind those events and see what it reveals about God himself as he works in and through history. Uh, but first, let's ask, ask God for help. Dear God, thank you for giving us your word so that we are not aimless, hopeless or lost in life. Thank you for the written record of what you've done in the past. Thank you for what you're doing now in and through our lives and for revealing enough of the future so that we can have confident hope 
instead of fear. Thank you that through your word we can know you and hear you speak to us. So please help us to listen well now for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest box office hits of all time and certainly the most successful animated film. It's an older one now, but of course is The Lion King. We've got that lion theme going through Daniel, haven't we? Uh, such a great story, uh, the, the ultimate comeback when all hope was lost. The son returned to take his place as saviour and king. He defeated evil and restored life and liberty. Life had gone full circle. And I think part of its success was that theme song, The Circle of Life. You just hear Elton John belting it out, can't you? Because uh, I think it echoes reality. Yeah, life is broken into days and you know, sunrise and, and sunset and then seasons, summer, autumn, winter, rain, 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 rain at the moment. Um, and then stages of life, you know, from cradle to grave, this cycle seems to go around. And on a larger scale of history, it has recurring cycles too. Your kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And the Bible explains, and we've seen it so clearly through uh, this book of Daniel, that God is actually behind all of that, those cycles and the rising and falling. From Genesis 3 onwards, we see this cycle, a cycle of God responding to human sin with both judgment and grace. Without God's judgment, we'd eventually destroy ourselves. But without God's grace, he destroys. As it is, this sin, grace, judgment cycle continues through history. Now, what's all I could do with Daniel chapter 8, you might be thinking? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Daniel's vision in chapter 8 describes specific world events that took place over the next 400 years, uh, and we see God's judgment and grace at play. The details, in fact, that are outlined in this vision are so accurate that uh, many uh, scholars and, and historians think that it, it just must have been written down after the events actually happened, uh, because of the way it lines up. Uh, but as we know, and as Nebuchadnezzar found out, uh, there is a God who reveals mysteries and can tell what the future holds. So let's go through this vision and draw out uh, the, the vital significance for us today. And if you don't like history, I'm very, very sorry, because we are back in school for a little while. <laughs> Verse 1 locates this vision two years after chapter 7. Remember, King Belshazzar is ruling in Babylon, the mighty capital of the empire. So it's a bit of a surprise when verse 2 suddenly takes us uh, to the citadel of Susa, 400 kilometres east of where Daniel is. You can see it on the map there. Uh, Susa's kind of highlighted there. Way over in the east. So, so there's a, a seismic shift in world power about to occur. Remember the writing of the wall of Daniel chapter 5? That happens about three years after this vision. That was the end of Belshazzar and the beginning of the two-horned ram of verse 3. Now, there is a lot of talk about horns uh, in, in this chapter. They represent power uh, of a king or an empire. And so verse 20 tells us, uh, when we get this interpretation of the dream, verse 20 tells us that the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 3 says, 
One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. Well, who replaced Belshazzar in chapter 5? It was Darius the Mede. So we've got the Medes and the Persians, that's the two horns. So Darius the Medes first. So the Persian, Persia is the longer horn. Uh, and, and when we look at history, it's exactly what happened. Uh, Persia came to power later and grew stronger. And as verse 4 says, they extended their rule to the west. Uh, Belshazzar and Babylon was, was really just first base for the, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, they went all the way down, right into North Africa, in fact. Uh, verse 4 says that they also went up north into Macedonia and Armenia and also into the Asian continent. And they went south down towards India. Very powerful. When you consider the, the times that it was over two and a half thousand years ago. No one could stand up to them, just as God revealed to Daniel. Meanwhile, up in Macedonia, a young boy was born to the king. Do you like that picture? I like that picture. That's Alexander having a bath in mosaic. His parents wanted him not just to have good baths, but a good education. And it just so happened that a bloke called Aristotle was teaching at the time. So the young Prince Alexander was taught to read and write by Aristotle. Imagine that on your resume. Uh, and by the way, uh, Aristotle also taught him, Greek, taught him Greek philosophy and history and biology and logic and warfare. By the age of 18, Alexander was a commander in his father's army, and by the age of 20, when his father died, Alexander became king. Now, what do you do if uh, you're in the ruling class in a big city like Thebes, and the king's kid has just become your ruler? Yeah, he's only starting to grow a patchy beard. Well, you take things into your own hands, and before things really get out of hand, uh, so a 20-year-old with a big head is a dangerous thing. Well, young Alexander heard Thebes was considering revolt. So what did he do? He raised an army, marched all night, and confronted the unprepared city with an ultimatum. Submit or die. They laughed. He killed them. Those who were left said, OK, we've changed our minds. We think you're great. And he was called Alexander the Great. No, that's, that's also a joke. Not, not quite how it happened. Um, over the next uh, few years, though, uh, he gained great power and rule in Macedonia, but he wanted to rule the world. And that meant fighting the Medes and Persians. Verse 5 says, A goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west. Verse 21 explains that that goat came from Greece, and the horn is this first King Alexander conquering. Verse 6 says he crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, he moved with incredible speed. And verse 7, it attacked the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its horns. Uh, the ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. That is an astonishing description of the military campaign of Alexander the Great, revealed to Daniel 200 years before it happened. By the age of just 25, 25, Alexander had conquered the entire empire of the Medes and Persians. If you have a look at that, that's almost exactly the same boundaries 
as the map before of the Medes and Persians. Verse 8 tells us, The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. At 33 years of age, Alexander contracted malaria and died. He never got to really enjoy the kingdom that he built, and history tells us that it was divided into four parts ruled by generals from his vast army. Again, exactly as Daniel said. Then Daniel focuses on another ruler, who probably a little less familiar to us, unless you're in church last week, because John did say his name. Verse 23 describes him as a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Try saying that five times really fast. Uh, and he came to power in 175 BC. He's pretty ordinary as a leader, really, uh, but not a master strategist like Alexander the Great, but he was incredibly cruel and incredibly deceitful, a mastery of flattery and intrigue, and he ends up taking control of Israel. Listen to how verse 9 describes him. Out of one of the four horns came another horn, which, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. That's Israel. Verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of heaven. That, that word host means the army of heaven, God's heavenly army. And here's the bombshell. He defeats some of them and then wants to set himself up as God. And at face value, it seems like he does. Verse 11 says, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. That's God. Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't his original name. He gave himself that name when he became, began ruling. You know what it means? Magnificent God. As people observed his exploits, he wanted them to believe he was God on earth. Verse 11 continues, It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Antiochus Epiphanes, to control the priesthood and the temple, he wanted to control every culture and conform them to Greek culture in a process called Hellenization. And historically, the Jews were particularly stubborn when forced to reject their God. It's funny, you know, like they easily slid into idolatry when left to themselves, but dug in when under pressure. Sad, isn't it? I, I see that in myself. Perhaps, perhaps you're the same. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he banned circumcision. That's the sign of God's covenant with them. He took away the Sabbath. He removed the law of Moses. That was their Bible. Uh, that's the bit in verse 12 that says the truth was thrown to the ground. He made everyone eat pork. Think about it. To a Jew, this was sacrilege, an utter disgrace. Those who resisted, he killed. Those who didn't resist but had leadership qualities, he killed. During this period, he killed about 100,000 Jews. If that wasn't enough, he took a pig, which is an un unclean animal for the Jews, and slaughtered it in the temple and scattered its remains around the temple and declared that the temple belonged to the Greek gods, not Yahweh, the God of the Jews. All this happened. And you can see how it reflects exactly what's in this dream. 
that God's revealed to Daniel. The prophecy was so shocking that in verse 11 of this chapter, uh, even great angelic beings asked, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. Just pause here for a moment. I think there are times for all of us when we ask that important question, how long, O Lord? Sickness, loss, grief, marriage and family breakdown, unemployment, tragedy or a combination of, of those kinds of factors in our lives. Sometimes life just hurts, doesn't it? On this occasion, God's answer is very specific. Verse 14. 2,300 evenings and mornings and the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, depending how you add up the numbers, I mean, that's actually pretty close to exactly what happens. Uh, some people do line it up to exactly 2,300. Uh, and God put a stop to it. As verse 25 says, He will be destroyed, but not by human hand. And friends, this is a clear reminder that while God allows sin and evil, He also puts limits on it. He doesn't allow it to go unchecked forever. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, it's very interesting, but where's the relevance? How's it going to help me walk more obediently with Jesus in the next seven days? It's a good question. So let's draw out some of that significance. At the very least, it should give us confidence that God knows the future. We may be surprised by events, but He's not. Uh, what's more, He's in control of that future. He's got the whole world in His hands, as I used to say years ago. And we are wise to submit our lives into His safe hands. But there's more. Consider Antiochus Epiphanes. Where did his power come from and how was he defeated? Verse 24 says, he'll become very strong but not by his own power. And then verse 25 tells us, he'll be destroyed but not by human power. We've already learned throughout the book of Daniel about uh, rulers rising to, to power and being deposed. Remember chapter 2? God is the one who rules over all. It was God himself who gave Antiochus Epiphanes his position and power. But Antiochus then used that position and power for evil instead of good, and God removed him. It was God who gave these visions to Daniel to warn his people what was coming so that they would be ready and not taken completely by surprise. But there's more. Verse 19 refers, refers to an appointed time of the end. God has already determined a definitive end point. Now, of course, we can see it more clearly than Daniel because we have Jesus and the New Testament and we know Jesus will return. Artists love trying to picture this. Uh, and he will bring an end to sin and suffering and Satan himself. And he'll take his people to glory. We know that it will happen. We don't know when. So when we're struggling under the burden of life in a broken world, remember God has put limits in place. 
it will come to an end. But there's more here. Verse 25 says, When they feel secure, he, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, he would destroy many. The they refers to God's people who uh, at this stage of history have returned to the promised land with uh, Nehemiah and Ezra uh, and they've rebuilt the the wall. Uh, The temple has been rebuilt too. Uh, Haggai talks about uh, that needing to happen. And, And there's always this temptation when things are going well and we've painted that, oh, that's getting a bit too specific, um, uh, yeah, to, just to feel secure in all the trappings of religion rather than secure in God himself. And when necessary, God disciplines those he loves. Three years of a rampant God-hater would shake anyone out of lukewarm belief, wouldn't it? But there's still more. Daniel 8 is an apocalyptic vision. You know, all the strange beasts and wild battles and and weird numbers and events and all that sort of stuff going on. They often describe a specific time in history uh, that is a pattern for later stages. And we saw that in chapter 7. There's these kind of specific stages but couldn't pin it down to any one specific moment in history. Chapter 8 we can pin down. Uh, but it's like there's another layer going on. And I, I like to think of it as a bit like marble cake. Do you like marble cake? Shows a choice one there, hey? You know, you bite into a lovely white cake, and what do you see? Bright blue! Ah! Oh, wasn't expecting that. You might be surprised, perhaps even appalled, especially if there's like some ginger in it. Not a fan of ginger. Um, it's not what you expected, and it could be quite awkward or uncomfortable. The first time, but then the next bit reveals a bit of blue and, oh, you're not so rattled because you've seen it before and you know how it fits as part of the cake. Apocalyptic works a bit like that, allowing us to see some of the ingredients of history so we know what's going on and it is intended to spur us on to be faithful and courageous rather than knocked uh, uh, away from our faith by these sort of unexpected moments. I think one of the reasons Daniel is so ill and exhausted and appalled at the end is because he took that first bite. Blue! Actually, horrible, horrendous things that he was seeing. He was in exile himself already and taken from the promised land and looking forward to returning. But as God opens the window on the future... Daniel takes that bite. He sees what's going to happen. uh, And it's a cycle again and again and again of suffering and opposition and hardship. And he's sick at the thought. Friends, we have the benefit of looking back at the visions and dreams God gave to Daniel. And we can see how they played out in the immediate next uh, part of history. But we can see how it's played out again and again. So as we take a a bite of this marble cake of apocalyptic literature, we should not be surprised when God chastens his people for being complacent. Next week we'll see how Daniel addresses that specific issue. We should not be surprised when evil seems to flourish in the world. We should not be surprised when we see and, and perhaps personally experience opposition to God and the progress of the gospel. We should not be surprised when political leaders oppose godliness, sometimes ruthlessly. 
Friends, we should not be surprised when God's people suffer or are even killed as they are in some parts of the world today. Simply because they belong to Jesus. We should not be surprised if we too may one day lay down our lives in service of God. All these things are signs that God is working in history to bring all things toward his appointed time of the end. So we should not be surprised when the Son of God enters the world and what happens to him? He's rejected and opposed and persecuted and arrested and put on trial and tortured and crucified. All these signs converge at the cross where our Lord and Saviour died to break the power of sin and Satan and death. And by rising again, show that there is an end to our present trials and suffering and a glorious resurrection for all who put their faith in him. The cross was a stumbling block to Jews who wanted signs. It was foolishness to Greeks who wanted wisdom. The cross is an obstacle to many modern Antiochus epiphanies who want to rule by their own power and glorify themselves. But to the Christian, to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the very power of God. As we look around us today, see clear signs uh, back through history, nations rising up against nations. Let's be faithful and courageous and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's remember uh, things like Jesus' words, uh, sorry, Jesus' work on the cross, and his, his words at the end of Mark 13. I'll finish with this. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. What I say to you, I say to everyone. 